Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to find the 34th chapter, Jeremiah chapter 34. We have more behind us than are in front of us in this journey through the book of Jeremiah. In late December of 2003, three very big events happened in my life. Uh, within about a two-week period, uh, my wife, Laurel, gave birth to our first child, Ty, who's a senior in high school and is at Meta this morning. He will sleep the rest of the day when he gets home. He's at Meta this morning. He'll be going off to college next year, and we're excited about his journey. But in late December of 2003, or December of 2003, I became a father for the first time. About eight days after Laurel gave birth, I walked across the stage of seminary and graduated with uh, first of, uh, my first seminary degree and was already planning to come and begin being your pastor. And then about a week and a half after Ty was born and I had received my diploma, we loaded everything we had in one truck. Before I got married, I could move in like 30 minutes. Now I'm just not moving. I'm just not going to move. If I did, I'd just start over. I wouldn't even try to pack it all. But we moved here. Little did I know that when we left the city of New Orleans, which was our home for two and a half years while I did my first seminary degree, Master of Divinity, um, there at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and Laurel uh, taught school at an elementary school outside of the city of New Orleans in an area called Destrahan. She taught early childhood special education. She focused on kids in the autistic spectrum, and she was my sugar mama. She taught to put me through school, and when I got my degree, she said, I'm going to start having children, and she did for about 15 years and I've yet to get her to go back to work. I don't, I don't know what she does with her time. I, I don't have any idea. Can, can you imagine? The di I'm joking. It's a joke. The online audience is going to think something happened. It's, I'm just joking with you. I always tell her I would much rather deal with 3,000 Baptists than six children because I can leave you. I can go home. I can go home. I can deny you an appointment. They're there every day. We wake up, they're there. We go to bed, they're there. We wake up in the middle of the night, they're standing there looking at us. They're there every single day. And our hands are folded in prayer that when they leave, they won't come back. That happens sometimes. Some of you are dealing with that. And so we, we moved here. Now, this sermon's not about me or my journey. It's about the city of New Orleans. Little did I know that this city would be impacted because the, about a year and a half later, in August of 2005, a storm turned into a hurricane called Katrina. And in late August of 2005, about a year and a half after we left a city that meant so much to us, mainly because so many of our friends were still down there studying in seminary. We loved the city. We enjoyed living there for the time that we were. Hurricane Katrina made landfall. Now, actually, the eye of the storm hit in the Gulf Coast region of South Mississippi. Global up Biloxi, Gulfport area. In fact, if you go to South Mississippi and tell them that Katrina hit New Orleans, they will correct you very quickly. Katrina hit in Mississippi. However, it was a Category 5. It downgraded to a Category 3 just before it made landfall. The fascinating thing about Katrina, there are many Category 2 and Category 3 hurricanes that make landfall. Katrina was so massive. 
one of the things that created the massive destruction was the width, the breadth of the storm. You see, hurricanes push water inland. It's called a storm surge. The storm surge for Hurricane Katrina, where it made landfall there on the coast of Mississippi, was in excess of 20 feet. That means today, if you were to drive to Gulfport or Biloxi and walk past the casino <laughs> and go out and stand on the beach, had you been standing there when Katrina hit, you would be underwater 20 or 30 feet. Think about that. And the massive amount of water that was pushed inland has to escape. So when the lake that sits just north of the city of New Orleans called the Pontchartrain, when it filled up with water, a massive amount of that water wanted to go back to the Gulf. Water flows to the ocean. For years and years and years, everybody knew that the city of New Orleans was built below sea level. New Orleans is an unplanned city. Nobody would plan on building a city below sea level, but New Orleans sets below sea level. And in order to protect it, Army Corps of Engineers have built around the city a series of levees. What do levees do? It's real simple. They hold water out. But when the levees breached, guess what levees also do? They hold water in. And so if you imagine a saucer, like one you would set a cup of coffee on, when you fill it up with water, the water just sits there. It has no way of escaping. It's like a bowl. And this is what happened inside the city of New Orleans. And Katrina killed over 1,800 people, cost about $125 billion in damages. You remember those images where they showed the city of New Orleans, and it literally had turned into a lake. Just outside of this image is the apartment that Laurel and I lived in, to the right of what you are looking. And the apartment that we lived in was completely flooded first floor and damage on the second floor. I had some friends that snuck back into the city that broke through uh, the, 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 the way in which they were not allowed the roadblocks to get to their materials and to get the family and took images and pictures that blew me away. I remember the church that Lord and I worshiped in and I was a member of and we attended there and I was a Sunday school teacher in this church. It looked as though when they showed pictures of the sanctuary, that you had filled the sanctuary up with water, and then just like water in a commode swirls, it looked like the water had been flushed and swirled. I will never forget the image of an entire church pew upside down, 12 foot in the air, shoved through the sheetrock. That's what it looked like. And whenever I hear about a hurricane now, I can't help but think about this one because so many of my friends and loved ones who studied with me in ministry lost everything they had. And if you go to that area today, if you were to spend some time in the city of New Orleans, I highly recommend it. Now, you need to talk with me about the morality of your visit, but I highly recommend it if you're going just to eat. Just go to eat. We're Baptists. We can do gluttony. We'll forgive each other. Just go to eat. So, so if you go to the city, what you'll find today is that you'll drive past home after home after home that's been restored, and there'll be an empty lot where someone decided not to rebuild the areas that you normally go to recovered very quickly because they depend on tourism. But if you go to the outskirts of the city, most people will tell you that New Orleans will never be the same because a massive storm made landfall. When you hear about a hurricane, you always think three questions. I always think these three questions. When a hurricane begins to form in the Gulf, and now that I'm a South Carolinian and proud to be it, I pay attention to those that form off of the eastern coast of the Atlantic. How big is it? Where is it headed? 
Now we have those path trackers. They chart the path of the storm. And then what time will it make landfall? What is its speed? We've all seen that diagram. Because for many of us, even though we're a long way from the coast, we're close enough having living, living in a state that borders the Atlantic Ocean where we can be deeply affected by hurricanes and tropical storms or per, perhaps even tropical depressions. One of the things we've been studying in the book of Jeremiah is the looming coming judgment of God. Now, every Sunday, I take just about three sentences to give you context. For those of you that get tired of hearing it, remember that I'm trying to be sensitive to those who are visiting with us. I don't want anyone to ever walk into a sermon and be confused and not understand why we're studying this book. The book of Jeremiah is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. It is the preaching and the prophetic ministry of a man, a literal man, a man just like you and me named Jeremiah. He was called as a young man to deliver the prophetic message of God to Judah that God's timetable of grace was up and that he was bringing judgment. Now, before you paint God into a picture of being wrathful or judgmental or hellfire and brimstone, of course, the Bible does present very clearly that God has the right to bring justice and wrath against sin. This judgment that Jeremiah preached was the result of generational disobedience, continual rebellion against God. And what we find is, is that there is grace even that God would deliver the news that judgment was coming. God didn't have to call Jeremiah. He didn't have to say a word. He could have allowed the judgment to make landfall without warning or without opportunity for people to turn and to repent. Yet he did, and he does continually warn sinners. In fact, modern-day preaching is, in essence, the extension of prophetic ministry because it is the modern-day proclaiming of the Word that continues to preach love for anyone who would turn and preach condemnation for those who would rebel against God, shake their fist in His face, and not accept the gift of His, Lord, of his Son, the Lord Jesus, who bled on the cross for us. So, in essence, the church, by proclaiming the words of God, even the words of Jeremiah, continue in that prophetic voice. In fact, what breaks my heart is the amount of churches that have lost their prophetic voice. They take their cues from wokeism and political correctness, and they're trying to make sense of the soup of lostness when if they would just preach the Bible, God will do his work in his people. In fact, this morning I prayed for you before the sun came up. I knew that there would be someone sitting in this room who needed to hear God's word and believe in Christ for the very first time. If that's you, I hope and pray today will be that day. Others of you believe and you trust the Lord, but you want to come today and be reminded of the goodness of his grace and the solidarity of his truth, that you can build your life on him. I want you to trust him and obey more when you walk out these doors in just a few moments than you ever have in your life. And Jeremiah is in the same vein of service to God. And we come to chapter 34, and what we begin to see over the next few chapters and over the next six weeks in this series called Landfall is the judgment of God is going to hit the coastline of Judah. And when it does, the storm of God's wrath is not going to leave anything untouched and unchanged in its path. What can we learn from this? What do we learn when God's judgment makes landfall on people? There's a lot to learn. And this morning, we're going to learn about the subject 
of obedience. In fact, I'd like to preach to you a message called Obedience School. In the book of 1 Samuel, not your text this morning, this is what the Bible says. I'll put it on the screen. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than, they implied they're better, than the fat of rams. One of the messages in the Bible over and over is that God cares about ceremony, cares about worship, he cares about sacrifice, he cares about people obeying the laws of God related to worship. But all of that really is to put people's hearts in a place where they leave and obey the Lord. God's desire is not pomp and circumstance. It's not just ceremonial allegiance. It is lifestyle obedience. Now, when you think of obedience school, what do you think about? I think about what you send your dog to, right? Obedience school, right? I'm a dog guy, not a cat person. We don't allow cat people to join our church. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> the problem I have with a cat is that every time I've ever looked at a cat, I can tell the cat's looking at me thinking, I'm smarter than you. I'm in charge. I may or may not walk by your leg and go, but I probably won't, and I'll never act like I'm happy to see you. My dog, I'd lock my dog in the trunk for a week, and when I open it, she loves me even more. I need a dog like that in my life. Now, when you think about obedience in a dog's life, sometimes folks send their dogs to obedience school for just basic obedience, to teach them how to kennel, to teach them how to be house trained, to teach them to heal, to teach them to obey commands. I have some friends that have a dog. Every time they open the door, the dog runs off. I said, this doesn't make any sense. You fed the dog. You gave the dog life. Why would the dog run away? And why don't you just let it? In other words, if I'm going to feed you and take care of you and get your shots and deworm you, don't be so ungrateful. You stay here. If you're running away, maybe I don't need you. It's like not understanding obedience. Now, there's another level of obedience. That's working dogs, like hunting dogs, which tend to be my favorite. That's a level of obedience that's very important from a safety standpoint. You don't need a hunting dog to obey just so you always get the game you're after. Of course, that's important. We want the dog to work and point the quail or to retrieve an animal, a dove or a duck. But when firearms are involved and when grown people are involved who with those firearms are trying to harvest a game animal, that dog better obey because dogs can get accidentally injured, hurt, shot. When they're in a duck boat, in a swamp, in the middle of the night, going to set out, or perhaps they're in a field where lots of people are shooting at a bird that's flying by, that dog needs to obey. That dog needs to sit. That dog does not need to break on the gun. That dog needs to hunt when it's told to hunt and place when it's told to place. But there's even another notch, and that is the dogs that serve our men in military, men and women in armed services, our folks who are our civil servants, and those who are in law enforcement. And many times those dogs have the opportunity to save the life of a precious hero in blue. And so that dog's obedience and compliance matters. And so there are people who spend their whole life and their whole career trying to teach the dog to obey. And think about it. If you were to invest in the obedience training of your dog, what do you want? It's simple. 
You want them to do what you tell them to do. That's what you want. When we study the Word of God, we can never rip the spiritual aspect of walking with God out of it. I'm not in any way suggesting that knowing and following God is just a matter of outwardly modifying your behavior. I'm not suggesting that at all. But equally so, I'm fearful that in the name of grace and spirituality, we've gotten afraid of talking about obedience, that God not only wants, deserves, but he demands for us to do what he says for us to do. And one of the things we're going to find in the series called Landfall is that even in the midst of the storm of God's judgment colliding with Judah's disobedience, God's still teaching why this is taking place. In fact, this morning in chapter 34 and in chapter 35, we're given some pictures of obedience. Now, chapter 34 begins with God through Jeremiah telling the king, Zedekiah, you're not going to stay here. You'll ultimately die in Babylon. The Bible says in verse 1, the word of God came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all the cities. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him. So this is what Zedekiah is going to hear from God through Jeremiah. Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but you shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye. Now there's an irony there because later we're going to learn that one of the things that Babylonians did to Zedekiah is they slaughtered his family in his presence and then they blinded Zedekiah after they made him watch. So there's an irony here. You will see him eye to eye and speak with him face to face and you shall go to Babylon. And the rest of the first part, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, they speak about this judgment on Zedekiah. We're going to have more to say about Zedekiah in a few weeks. But then, right out of the blue, in the rest of chapter 34 and in the entirety of chapter 35, we get two pictures of obedience. The first one is one that's quite common. It's one I'd like to share with you from a point of challenge. It's the picture of temporary obedience. You ever had that kid that obeys sometimes? Or that dog that sometimes will obey? You ever had that employee that one day does an incredible job and the next day you wonder who are you and what have the aliens done with your body? We've all known the frustration of trying to build a relationship with someone whose behavior is inconsistent and their obedience to do what they say they're going to do, well, to be honest with you, it has to be described as temporary. Look what happens beginning in verse 8, chapter 34. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them. Now, what, what's happening here? Context. Zedekiah told all the people, I proclaim liberty to everybody. What does liberty mean? It means freedom. I proclaim freedom to everybody. Now, verse 9 defines what he's talking about. That everyone 
should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. Now, verse 10, and they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Now, we, we need to give a little context here. Most of us, when we come across the word slavery, like every other human being, we read words and we interpret things put in front of us through the lens of our own experience. We are well-versed and well-aware of the travesty, the sinful, rebellious, disobedient act of human slavery that was used in our country to enslave primarily people of African descent. So when people read about biblical slavery, they tend to picture in their mind what they've been taught. Now, the truth is, I'm not in any way defending either form of slavery. But inside of the Jewish people, there was a slavery different from what you've been taught, which occurred here in our nation and in other places around the world, and quite frankly, still occurs today. Slavery is still alive and well in some very dark places in our world today. What is outlined in Scripture specifically inside of the nation of the Jews, we would use the English term indentured servanthood. So the primary reason someone would become a slave inside of Israel was debt. In other words, they acquired through poor decisions, circumstances, the death of parents, the inability to take care of themselves. And so they could choose to come into the home of someone wealthier, someone who had the ability to receive their service, provide for them a place to stay, provide for them food to eat, provide for them a place to work, and in exchange, they would serve as a slave, a servant. Now, the way God set this up in the law, the law of the Old Testament, was that this was only allowed until the seventh year. And every seven years, the slave must be set free. The book of Exodus lays this out. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. He doesn't buy his freedom. The six years he gave you earns his freedom. Whatever debt he owed, he has paid back. Why is this? Well, there's a lot. I don't have time to unpack it all this morning. But what this did is this created an environment where people could surrender their freedom in order to pay off a debt. But it also created a system of checks and balances where the nation would not build itself on economic gain from robbing people of their own dignity and personal liberty. So, the Babylonians are raging war in and around Judah, and they are on their way into the city. Most scholars think it just made sense for Zedekiah to say, you know what? We're all going to face this. We'll defend the city better if everybody's free. So we're going to make a proclamation. Most people believe, rightfully so, I think, that they had gotten away from this. That because they were so willing to disobey many other laws, they were disobeying this law, and they were keeping men and women in servitude, servanthood, indentured servanthood, for longer periods of time. They were abusing them. I mean, quite frankly, if you would worship idols in the temple, if you would participate in child sacrifice, 
What's the big difference as to whether or not you set your slave free on the sixth year? And so there is this moment of repentance where Zedekiah says, all right, I proclaim liberty. Everybody, set your indentured servant, your slave free. And then we see verse 11. Look at verse 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord, verse 12, came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now notice the irony here. Out of the house of slavery. In other words, God says, I'm the one that set all of you free from slavery. I liberated all of you, and I gave you a law so that even if someone in dire straits sold themselves into indentured servanthood, they would not live their entire life as a slave. These are my covenant people. I did this. And then look at verse 14. At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. He's quoting Deuteronomy. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented. So God said, I saw you temporarily obey. You repented. But look what he says. And did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. Now watch that. They went into the temple. And they said, God, we've been wrong. We're going to do right. We make a promise to you that we're going to set these men and women free. Verse 18. But then you turned around and you profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be yours. In the rest of the chapter, he pronounced judgment on temporary obedience. We live in a day and age where talk is cheap. Promises are made all the time. I don't expect lost people to keep their promises. Some do. I've met many moral people who were not followers of Jesus. If they shook your hand and made a deal with you, they kept it. What breaks my heart, though, is to see people who proclaim faith in a promise-keeping God break their promises. Almost obeying is disobeying. Almost obeying is disobeying. And the interesting thing is, Jesus touched on this. Jesus tells a story in the book of Matthew that I think sheds light. He says, what do you think? So he's, he's asking people about the kingdom of God. A man had two sons. I can relate to that. And he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. I ain't got no vineyards, but I got a weed eater, and they run it. He said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. If anything around my house looks like a vineyard, I spray Roundup on it. If I can't run my lawnmower over it and a kid can't weed eat in it, I'm killing it. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Can you just see the son stomping his foot? You ever had that kid that would just say, tell you what they're not going to do? Let me just tell you, this is not a parenting sermon. Stop counting at these children. Why do you want to give them three seconds to disobey? If I were going to write a parenting book, it would be called Jerk Them Up. <laughs> son, go and work 
in the vineyard today? And he answered, I will not, but, but, just when we think we're going to have to jerk this one up, afterward, he changed his mind and he went. Now then Jesus goes on to talk about the other son. And he went to the other son and said, the same? And he answered, I'll go, dad. I'll go work. But he did not go. Now look what happens. Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father? Well, they said the first one did. This is not, this is not hard to understand. He initially said he wasn't going to do it, but he did it. You go to the vineyard, one's working. That's the one who did the will. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, why? In Jesus' day, the bottom of the center pile were tax collectors and prostitutes. One for obvious reason. One for moral bankruptcy. But the tax collectors were especially hated because many of them were Jewish, working for the Romans, taking money that they shouldn't. The Roman policy was as long as you get all of Caesar's money, you can get all you want too. It's organized crime is what it is. And so these were the two most obvious hated people who deserved no place in the kingdom of God. But guess who started getting saved when Jesus shared the gospel? Prostitutes and tax collectors. Now, Jesus is not saying tax collectors who continue to collect taxes or prostitutes who continue to sell their bodies. No, no, no. He's saying I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Why? Well, compare the tax collectors and the prostitutes that followed Jesus with the Pharisees that wouldn't follow Jesus. The fundamental difference is the tax collectors and the prostitutes said, we know we're worthless. We know we're filthy. We know we're sinners. We know we deserve the wrath of God. But if you'll have us, if you'll forgive me, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Whereas the Pharisees would say, we know we're righteous. We know we're in the right class. We know our scrolls. We've studied our prophecies. Now, we're not really interested in our hearts changing. We will rather hide behind the credentials of what we say we are going to do. You made a confession this morning. You said, Pastor, what do you mean? I haven't talked to most of you. When you walked in these doors, you made a confession, a public confession. You said, I'm a person of faith. Specifically, you said, I'm a person of faith in Christ. If you don't have faith in Christ, you probably picked the wrong church. I'm a person of faith, faith in Christ, and I believe in him, and I believe he came, and I believe he lived, and I believe he died, and I believe he rose again, I believe he's coming back, and I believe I need to be in his house today. Most of you made every one of those confessions by your actions, and I want you to know it makes me very proud. But what about our obedience on Monday? What about our adherence to God's Word on Tuesday? I think it's fascinating that right in the middle of the landfall of this judgment, Jeremiah says, tell all the people, that God saw what they did, how they repented of holding these servants and slaves. And no sooner had they repented that they went right back and did what they said they would not do. Temporary 
obedience. Now, the good news is, when you turn the page in your Bible to chapter 35, you see the second picture. Exemplary obedience. Obedience that is an example to all of us. And it's a group of people. I'm going to teach you about them. You might want to say this word. The Rechabites. Throw that around if you want. You can add a little guttural to it, be a little Hebrew, Rechabites. The Rechabites. So what in the world do the Rechabites have to do with my life? I'm about to show you. Look what happens in verse 1 of chapter 35. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in those days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites. I know in the English you would only say the E as a short E, like wreck or wretch, but in the Hebrew it's Rechabites. And speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and then offer them wine to drink. I guess Jeremiah was Episcopal. So I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, the brothers and all of his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Igadeliah, excuse me, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials in the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine. Somebody like, I never get invited to that Bible study. I sat in front of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said, drink wine. Now, first of all, this is kind of odd, but God's doing something here. Watch what happens in verse 6. This is so cool. But they answered, we will drink no wine. See, he doesn't make him some Baptist here. We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard. But you shall live in tents all your days so that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. Verse 8, we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonabad, our father, commanded us. Now, before you go, well, now, where is this going? What is God trying to teach us? Well, first of all, a little background. There are people who take solemn vows before the Lord for all kinds of reasons. This is not a defense of their lifestyle. Jeremiah had a house. No doubt Jeremiah probably consumed wine. Most people in the ancient world did for sanitary reasons. The alcohol level of ancient wine was much lower than modern wine, but the tinge of fermentation, the alcohol, would kill bacteria. And so it was used as medicine and it was consumed. And so Jeremiah, no doubt, drank wine. He had access to it because he set pictures of it before them. He did so because God told him to do that because God knew they were going to say no. And why did they say no? Well, this people, this nomadic group, they were Jews, had received a command from a forefather. Now, if you do the history, the forefather that they reference, Jonabad, it's about 250 years before this conversation. So that means a dude, not God, a man 
250 years ago, your mama's daddy's 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 mama's daddy's daddy's mama's mama's daddy's daddy. That man said, all of our clan, we're not going to drink. We're not going to build homes. We're not going to live in villages. We're going to be nomads. Most likely they were shepherds. And we're going to do this as a vow before the Lord. Now, God provides no favor for this either way. This is not the point. You've seen people like this. Have you ever gone to the Amish country? And you've seen people who live out a certain vow. I don't agree theologically, but I admire the conviction. I've known many people in the Mennonite faith, often confused with Amish faith. The Mennonite faith actually embraced technology for the use of work and, and uh, the ability to advance human good. They just don't use technology for entertainment. And so inside of that, I think there's great challenge to you and to me. I was speaking with a Mennonite brother once, and he said, do you believe that there is a trash that comes into your home through your TV set? I said, sure, if you turn to the particular channels, there is. He said, so why have a TV in your house? It's a good point. Now, I have a TV in my home through technology. I can control the data. There are channels that we don't have, we don't subscribe to. There are filters that we can put. Primarily, it's just for football, which, of course, is the sport of Jesus. And so... I'm not ready to throw my TV out, but I, I certainly understand the conviction and I appreciate it. But that's not even the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not for you and me to start living like a Ricobite, although we'd probably be better off if we did. The point of the passage is what is God going after? What does he want? He wants people to do what he says. So he finds a group of people and he puts them in front of Jeremiah and he said, Jeremiah, let me show you the opposite of what I'm dealing with here. And Jeremiah has a conversation with them. Now watch what God says in verse 12, and we'll close. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. No matter the way, that guy's dead. But look what he says. I have spoken to you persistently. God's saying, I'm not a dead forefather. I'm a living God. Here's some human beings obeying a dead guy who's a forefather. I'm a living God asking you to obey, and you will not obey. So the Rechabites become a great example of the obedience God is looking for. Is that still true in our lives? Do you know what Jesus said in the book of John? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John, later at the end of his life, writing the book of 1 John, said, for this is the love of God, that you lift your hand up and cry at worship? No. That you have goosebumps whenever we sing on Sunday? Mm-mm. For this is the love of God, that you have correct doctrine on all matters and you are joined and a part of and a covenant member of a good local New Testament church. Mm -mm. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And John, worried about people attacking him for being legalistic, said, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I don't have time this morning. I don't know that I'm qualified to do so. But if you just take an overview, here's some examples of Jesus' commandments on our lives. In keeping with the Old Testament flow, I, I chose 10. There are many more. 
Jesus said, you must be born again. That's a command. You disobey that command, you die without Christ. Jesus said, love me with your whole heart, the greatest commandment. Second part of that is, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, get rid of anything that causes you to sin. You may not can get rid of your phone because you use it for your employment, but get rid of that filthy app that brings images to your face every single day. Jesus said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Jesus said, give generously. Jesus said, care for those who are in need. Is there somebody in need today that would say your name when they were asked, he helped me, she cares for me? Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Don't be ashamed of him tomorrow on a construction site. Don't be ashamed to stand for him tomorrow when you speak. Don't be ashamed of him in your classroom or when you're helping your client or your patients or when you're speaking with your adult children. Jesus said, make disciples. He, he literally says, go and make disciples. Jesus said, be ready for my return. I could go on and on of the clear commands of Jesus, but even in these, I found myself in prayer this week saying, Lord, there are areas where I feel like I obey you in great faithfulness, and then there are areas where I'm not obeying you, and I need more obedience in my life. And I was reminded of what we're studying in our small groups. If you're not in a small group right now, you're missing a blessing. We're walking to the book of Philippians, and this week we talk specifically about a Verse where Paul sums up the Christian life, the human responsibility and God's work. You know what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so he's saying you've been faithful, you're not rebellious, you're not running from God as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, Paul was in jail when he wrote this, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, based on the structure of the sentence, what is the work of working out? It's not earning salvation. That would be work for your salvation. That's not biblical. He's saying, take what God has put on the inside and work it, bring it out. Whatever size your bicep is this morning, it's not as big as it could be. It's just not. You, you can always work tearing it down through obedience, and guess what will happen? It'll grow back larger. Work it out and do so with fear and trembling. In other words, your obedience matters. Now, just when you begin to feel overwhelmed, he comes right back with the next verse. Look at verse 13. I love this. For it is God who works, I'm not working alone, in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I work it out, he works it in. I work it out, he works it in. This is the great news of the gospel. Not only can you not obey Christ, you cannot obey Christ without knowing Christ. But once you know Christ, the power to obey Christ is in you because Christ is in you. And therefore, the role of a Christian is not to sit by passively, but he or she is not to function as though the eternal weight of their salvation rests on their own performance. No, 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 it's better than both. I am free to know I am loved and saved and redeemed by God's grace alone. But that same freedom creates a fire within a woman of God 
to obey the Lord. There was a revival preacher named D.O. Moody. In 1886, he was in Massachusetts holding a meeting, and a young man stood up at the testimony time. And he said, I don't know everything, and I have a lot of questions, but I've decided I'm going to trust and obey Jesus. The man who had hired, been hired that night to lead the worship wrote that down, trust and obey. He mailed it to a Presbyterian minister, a friend of his, with a testimony letter explaining what the young man had said. When the minister opened it up and read what had happened and read that word, trust and obey, he began to pen old hymn. He wrote it right there, composed it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I love the way that says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glorious, joyous experience we have on the way. To do his good will, he abides with us still, if we'll only trust and obey.